There was a commercial in the country of Argentina, the, a Coke commercial that's 10 years old, and I want to tell you about it. I, I saw it this week, and it was absolutely overwhelming in many ways. I hope it would mean as much to you as it did to me, but this is one of those where I'll give you an illustration, and you'll go, I don't really care. Um, but it was an incredible picture where the commercial peers in on a young couple in a beautiful mid-century modern home where the wife comes over. She's so excited. She shows the test that they've been waiting for, showing that she is pregnant. And they explode in joy. And then for the next minute, the commercial shows clips of the life after the baby becoming a toddler. Once a cute house is now filled with baby stuff everywhere. The 3 a.m. alarm comes on when the when the noise from the nursery comes on where the dad starts carrying the baby down the hallway, stepping on Legos as he goes. Uh, There's the dad waking up, rattling to a flashing baby monitor. The stroller is then being pushed in a park by a tired mom and a dad who's carrying all kinds of equipment and a young, glorious couple runs up beside them and waves and they don't even have the energy to wave back. Then a prepared meal is pulled off violently from the table because the baby can now reach up and pull. Dab pulls out a record eager to play his own music only to find slime all over it. Mom rescues the toddler from eating dog food. They find the kid hiding in the cabinet. The kid ruins a potential intimate time and then dad tries to work, but blocks keep hitting him in the head. Toys seem to explode out of nowhere. But then the mom walks in with a tray of food, the last glimpse, and a cold Coke. Now, here's the point, right? Walks in, a tray of food, a polite sandwich, a cold Coke, puts it down, very nervous. Dad sets the kid down, grabs the Coke, takes a big swig, looks over at her. She has anxiety all over her face, worry, fear, where she holds up another pregnancy test. (laughs) And it's positive, so it pans to the man. How will he react? His eyes well up. And then he screams in absolute joy, where she is then reminded, this is a blessing. This is really good. It is chaotic, but it is awesome. In the ancient world, and in the biblical era, and even with modern jokes from parents today, uniquely, children are portrayed as a burden, as a pain, as a weight, which just has to be endured until the child becomes valuable. You know, they can buckle their own seatbelt. They can drive themselves to school. They can leave. You can have your office back. But the Bible always speaks as children as a blessing, something that's very good and actually commands godly people to make more. Now, our sermon today is from the book of Luke, where I've said before that Luke's goal is to instill in you and me a sense of confidence, like you're, like you're holding on to something with absolute confidence that will take you where you are to go. And Luke wants you to have confidence as a Christian. So all these glimpses in Luke's gospel are committed to you so that you can have confidence in the very person of Jesus is the risen Savior. Luke's goal is to still instill a sense of confidence for you to the point where you actually have to ask yourself, what does it look like to be confident in what the Lord has done? What does it look like to have confidence with the very faith that I say that I have? Jesus actually answers this very briefly at the beginning of our passage, that for you to have confidence in the faith that you have, it's to look like the faith of a child, which seems simple enough, but it's also mind-blowing at the same time, because we often don't think that children can do anything on their own. 
And that's exactly the kind of confidence that you and I, and that's exactly the kind of faith that you and I are to have in Jesus that we just go wholeheartedly to him, that he is our everything. But what about you today? Are you confident in the faith that you say that you have? One who leans in. Or is there something holding you back in your own faith? Now, if you're a Christian, something that ties you down or that holds you back is actually a conscious means for you to understand your need for repentance. You know, if you, if you want to pursue Christ like this, but there's just something tying you down or holding you back, that, that job of you that you're to have at that point is more repentance and clinging to Him. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this passage will show you that it is your need to repent of what is holding you down from a full faith in Christ Jesus as your risen Savior and as your full Lord. The flow of the passage is the connection of answers given to those who are asking about can they inherit the kingdom of God? Ones who would receive the reward. What does that look like? Who's able to enter the kingdom of God? Well, first in the passage, in just a couple of verses, he says, those that act like children, who cling to their good father. And the rest of the passage addresses what can keep you from a true relationship with God. What can keep you from God? What can keep you from acting like a childlike faith? What can keep you from eternal life? So I want to draw your attention to three things that Jesus says in this passage. The first thing, uh, you don't have a printed outline on the back of the bulletin, so, so I'll try to enunciate all the things that you need to know in keeping with this outline. But the first thing is that Jesus strikes at the heart of this man in this passage's introspection. It's amazing how these two passages are paralleled. What does faith look like? It looks like the child. What does faith not look like? Well, here we've got three things that it doesn't look like. Jesus strikes at the heart of man's introspection. It's the first thing in the first couple of verses. The first thing I want you to see in this passage, zeroing in on man's own introspection. This man considers himself, the main, the main person of this text, considers himself to be a good person, a godly person, a pious person. We would even look at him and say, that's a good guy. We, we want to elevate that guy amongst other people because of what he says he accomplishes. And Jesus wants this man to be aware of his own introspection and what it says about his own relationship with God. But notice how this happened from the very beginning. Look at verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18, where this young ruler says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he calls Jesus good teacher. And this is not sarcasm. This is a respectful thing to do. You might call someone sir or doctor, or professor, giving them the allowance of what they have achieved. Maybe you might call me most high reverend. You're welcome to. None of you will, but you can. But basically, he's looking at Jesus, and he says, good teacher, as if to say, I respect you. I'm eager to hear what you have to say, and I will take it with a lot of gravity of how you're going to answer me. <coughs> all, I, all I care about is what you have to say. Now, I don't think... Uh, I don't think this leads us to circumstances and language that lead us that he's testing Jesus like, like other people have done previously in the book of Luke. He's not trying to trap Jesus. He really just wants to know. But Jesus' response is what's striking here. Look at the text. He says, why do you call me good? Look there. No one is good except God. Already this conversation seems to be going in a different direction than you and I might normally understand. But why the blunt confrontational response. He's just asking Jesus a question, and Jesus has said, why are you talking to me about this? 
I think it's because of what he immediately follows it up with. You know the commandments. And basically, have you kept them? And how does the man respond? Well, ways down. You bet I have. You know the commandments. Have you done this? Have you done this? The man responds, absolutely. And here's what's interesting. You've got a general surprising flow of a conversation, and it's interesting at least. But play, play the conversation back. This is why it's helpful to read the Bible again and again. You might just gloss over this, and Jesus is putting this man on trial. But play it back. Man comes to Jesus respectfully. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, there's no one good. Then man's response to the commandment questions is, I'm good. Oh, are you now? Jesus, on one side, says no one is good but God. And this man, asking how he has kept the commandments, says, I'm good. I've kept the commandments. And this is what Jesus did. He drew up out of the man what the man truly thinks of himself. Implicitly, this is what you think of yourself. You think you're God. You don't need what God has to offer. He's a good person. He's a commandment keeper. So the man's hoping he's the kind of person who's worthy to inherit eternal life, which is really the internal desire for all of us. I just hope I'm good enough to get in. I just want to be pure enough to be seen as worthy enough to get in. Friend, I wonder how much of you is like this man in this text. Inquisitive, hopeful, ultimately seeing yourself as good as much as you keep the commandments. Now, in some ways, the Bible for us acts as a giant mirror where we see what it is exposing in our own lives, showing us who we really are. And in many ways, the Bible, praise God for the Bible acting like that. And in this particular case, Jesus is holding up the mirror himself. So I would encourage you, in a season of reflection and fellowship and giving and receiving, let Jesus' question be asked of you. Friend, are you good? This man, so confident in his own morality to the point where he thinks he can stand before God on the last day and inherit the kingdom of God because of how well he has kept the commandments. He says he's done it in a pure way. But here, see the second part of this passage where Jesus breaks down the man's introspection. He shows the man's introspection at first, but then watch how he'll break it down by just a simple test. It's a simple test. It's a hard one, but it's a simple test. And, and it's interesting. Think back like five months ago when I was preaching through 1 Timothy. Uh, in the charge to Timothy, the explanation, you think of 1 Timothy, there's an explanation of elders and deacons of women and men, of prayer, all these disciplines. Paul actually, though, spends a lot of time on those, but he spends a bulwark of time on what it actually means to have true wealth and how dangerous it actually is to have a lot of money. Wealth can be something we love, something we find satisfaction in, something that tempts us, something that can cause us to trust our own work. A week ago, one of my friends to a couple of our friends said, what would you do if you had one year to spend as much money as you wanted? There's no bottom of the bank account. You could do everything. And the first thing one of my friends said, helicopter everywhere, even to the mailbox, just no matter what. And we look at, we look at wealth or money like that as what can it provide? But so often in the scriptures, what wealth does is expose how bankrupt we actually are. And this is, this is the 
This is the bolt that Jesus is going to tighten on this man's life. Look, down, look, down to, uh, look back at the book of Luke where Jesus speaks to this rich man and begins to break down his heart. And he does this with a simple test. Look at verse 22 where he picks up on one thing. He speaks to the man. The man responds back. Jesus responds back to him. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This is a famous directive. It's well known. Often used as a trick to Christians by non-Christians to be like, you have clothes? Are you really a follower of Jesus? It's often used in Jesus. You may be wondering, what is Jesus saying here? Is Jesus saying, if you want eternal life later, you now have to keep all the commandments now, then, alongside keeping all the commandments, then give away everything you have, and then become my disciple? Or maybe Jesus is saying that the way to inherit eternal life is keeping all the commandments, and then in addition to that, giving everything away that you have. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is using a test to expose this person of what's truly happening in their life. This is a test after all. What's he doing? Jesus rejects the man's claim to have kept all the commandments. He says, I've kept all the commandments. So Jesus responds by saying, okay, keep with this one from me. He tells him something that exposes the very hardness of his own heart. He asks this man to do something that God has asked Christians to do from time to time over the last 2,000 years. But he asks him to do it, not because doing that thing is the way you inherit eternal life. He asked them to do it, asked this man to do it, because the thing that he is going to ask him to do reveals something about the man's own heart. You say you can keep all the commandments. This I command to you. And what does it say the man does? He gets sad. He didn't want to do that. This man had just said, I'm good. I'm a commandment keeper. And Jesus says, okay, let's try out the first three commandments. You have no other gods before me. Look at the text. You shall not worship them or serve them. You shall not make an idol. And he says, you worship God. You love him more than anything. Okay, give everything away so that you can fully worship God. Give away your money, your property. Give it to the poor and worship God. No other gods before me. It's very expensive. And I don't like that. Now, what's Jesus' point? He is showing this young man that he is not a commandment keeper after all. He's showing this young man that his heart is an idol, an idol factory. He worships his money. He worships his stuff. He cannot inherit eternal life, and he's worshiping something else other than God. He uses, Jesus uses a case study of wealth to expose that this man actually does have other gods before the true God. So Jesus breaks down this man's introspection with a simple test. Now again, back to the mirror. Jesus uses the scriptures as a mirror for our own hearts. I think it would be beneficial for you to ask a close Christian friend, what do you think God would expose in my life through a question like that? What are, what are something that you, a good friend to me, you a worthy spouse of me, you a kind person to me, what, what do you see me doing that if Jesus asked me about, okay, give up that, that I would become sad or wouldn't like that? Which idol am I unaware of or unrepentant in? Is it my reputation? My money? Am I a narcissist? Am I only about my kids? Am I only about my profession? Am I only about my savings or my sport or my future? It is good to expose yourself to the Bible. 
Because by doing so, the Bible exposes God to you. This man had something lifted up in front of his eyes. Something that he didn't see coming because he was following the rules of what he thought the rules were being. And all God did was ask a question to him. So it's good to expose yourself to the Bible and see it as a mirror, but by doing so, it exposes God to you. But keep looking at this fascinating story. Jesus baffles his own disciples. So the, the camera angle is now, you know, it turns from this man, and now it shifts to where disciples are speaking up. It's a fascinating turn of events. Jesus baffles his own disciples there. <coughs> Jump ahead to verse 26. There's a shift in camera angles where the disciples begin to speak up in verse 26. Now, don't look ahead beyond 26, but look at what 26 says. Those who heard it, meaning Jesus' disciples, ask, then who can be saved? They recognize he just trumped this guy. But, okay, now, can we be saved? How can any of us be saved? You and I have lived in an era of evangelicalism, I want to say for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, You and I have lived in an area of evangelicalism that does evangelism by coming up to someone and says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We live in an era of evangelism where God is the needy partner and his kingdom just really needs you and it would be a sad place if, if God didn't just have you on his team. Or maybe we talk about evangelism or seek out evangelistically other people by going to these people and we might affirm this man himself. And so that may lead you to think that the disciples would ask Jesus who can be saved to where Jesus might respond, anyone, baby. It's simple. Anyone can be saved. Look at this man. Look how great he was. Look at these disciples. They spent so much time following Jesus. They're literally in the arena as this totality, Satan-crushing person is wandering around the Middle East. Anyone can get in. But look at verse 27. But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Which goes back to the question that the man has in verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Effectively, effectively, Jesus' answers to his own disciples on who can be saved, what can we do to be saved? Jesus' answer is, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It is impossible for you to inherit eternal life. It is impossible for you to be good enough to inherit eternal life. I imagine some of you have heard of the proverbial grandson who starts sucking up to grandma towards the end of grandma's life. The danger of tricking someone into letting you in to the final inheritance or being the good grandkid or the good son that, okay, now I'll bestow on you all the riches of the earth. Very often, you and I treat God like this. Maybe late at night we go, oh, so wrong was I today, but Jesus, I will do better tomorrow. Will you love me? Will I inherit the kingdom of God if I do better tomorrow? If I pull myself up by my bootstraps? Jesus says only God can make it possible for man to inherit eternal life. This man worships money. He looked like the most godly guy around, but in his heart he worshiped money. So Jesus broke down his self-authenticating heart 
And this man on the outside looks godly and pious and upstanding and moral and the real deal. This guy is the one who you would want to be an elder or a deacon. This is the guy who you want to be leading in your church. But Jesus says, you're an idolater. And then he drives in to everyone watching. This man can't do anything to inherit eternal life. You can't do anything in the same way. Now, eyes back in the text, the man doesn't respond very well. Look at verse 23. I know I just jumped over a couple of verses. Verse 23. How does the man respond when Jesus asked him about money? He heard these things and became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus broke down his self-authenticating heart of this man. He doesn't begin to respond to Jesus by saying, I see it, I get it, you're right. I'm not to hold on to anything but give myself over to you. Remember, this is just after the passage of what does true faith look like. It looks like a child clinging for the father. The, the Bible says that he becomes sad. He becomes sad because he loves his money. It's very obvious there. Now, now think back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, what I brought up earlier, where Paul talks a lot about money, where it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in this case, it's the root of something that's going to plunge this man's soul into destruction. For you, it might be something else. But for this man, it was money that would plunge his soul into destruction. Jesus will carry on in verse 24, and this is a unique statement where Jesus looks right back at him, and we're told that with sadness, he says to him, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Why? Because those who have wealth, who find it, difficulty, find it difficult to enter the kingdom of God, when you have a lot, it is easy to trust what you have more than your own trust of God. When you don't have a lot, it seems to be easy to trust God as the provider. It's easy to love what you have more than what God can give you. It, it tricks you into the incorrect evaluation of things. Jesus says, look again at the text, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, people get caught up in all kinds of theories of what this means. What does it look like for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? You might take a tour in Israel where they show you that there actually are ways for camels to go in these small doors where they get on all their hands and knees and they crunch up like maybe a cat goes through that door that never seems to be closed enough for the cat to get through the door. But this camel can get through this small rock. So the implication there is if you just get down and dirty in the muck of life, you can punch through. But what Jesus is doing here is he's giving an illustration. The answer is it is impossible for a giant camel, which is like a prehistoric horse, to get through the eye of a needle, which a lot of us don't use because they poke us and they hurt us. I don't want anything to do with that needle. It is impossible for that to happen. So when you hold on to an idol, that is your God. And with that God, that idol, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible. You can't do it. So this young man is worshiping something other than God himself. Now, friends, please see this. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the call of this text is for you to test that. Uh, what, what, what am I holding on to? That'll actually keep me for the kingdom of God. Only you can answer that for yourself. You might ask someone to help you with a prodding question, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, ask yourself, what do you think could keep you from the kingdom of God? 
this man, it's money. What is it for you? To the Christian, you and I are called by this text to be very eager to shed off those things that keep us from the kingdom of God, which is called repentance. But to you non-Christian, you need to see that, that this is keeping you from God entirely. You see, this passage is actually all about the gospel message itself. It's not about works and how some type of inventory you and I are to keep on ourselves, but it's about the gospel. The, because in an understanding of the gospel, it is impossible for anyone to be good enough, to do enough, to inherit eternal life. And to drive the stake even deeper, it is impossible for us to actually free ourselves from our own idolatry. Only God can make that possible, the text says. Only He can set your heart free from the bondage of sin. Only He can show us our own idolatry where He gives us His Word acting like a mirror. Only He can wake us up to the totality of His sweetness and goodness. Only He can change us so that our desires are for Him rather than for our idol. And only He can save us through what He has done, not by what we do. Only He can save us by the literal offering of His own Son through the death of a cross, the burial in a tomb, the resurrection from the grave, to where we're on this side of salvation now, to where He says, come to me. Oh, it becomes easy to come to that. And Jesus will explain even more on that in a second. If you trust Him, if you receive Him, this promise, you receive the gift of eternal life. If you receive Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, your King, where you lay everything before Him and say, I don't want this, I want you. He says, those are the people who inherit eternal life. The final thing that this text shows us, not only is a breakdown of this man's introspection, but finally, Jesus says that he is actually worth of everything that you and I would put off. Your addiction to this, your pursuit of that, your reveling in this worldly thing, Jesus said, if you take that, and you put it over here, and you drive at him, it is incredibly worth it. Jesus declares to this man and to us today that he is worth every sacrifice of putting off our sin and putting on his righteousness. And this is great because you see the glory of Jesus' surgical precision here. Here's a man in the grip of idolatry. He loves his stuff, and he can't let go of this and that. He's not able to let go of this and that. He loves it to the point, the haunting point, is that he will then plunge his own soul into destruction. And so Jesus responding to a statement earlier from Peter, you see this in verse 28. It's always like Peter just bursting out questions or wanting to participate. Look at what Peter says in verse 28. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. He cannot wait to say something. And so he blurts it out. And effectively, Jesus responds to Peter, Look there, verse 29. He says, Peter, I know. Peter said, we do this. And Jesus says, I know. But you have not given up anywhere close to what I will ultimately give you. Peter responds rightly and says, we've given up this, we've given up that, we've given up that. And Jesus is saying, this is the best part of the gospel, is it is nothing in comparison to what you will inherit in the kingdom of God. You cannot give up the equal of what I'm going to give to you. You will not be able to give up what I am ultimately able and willing to give you. 
you won't be able to do it. Jesus declares here that nothing can be given up by us for him that is equal to what he gives up for us by him. Listen to the words of verse 29 through 30. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left the house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more, many times more in this time and in the age to come in eternal life. Friends, this is the surgeon's precision on display of all of our own hearts. He's saying here that a guy who's holding on to something that damning, he thinks that giving it up will ultimately leave him unfulfilled and unsatisfied. If I give up this well, if I give up this pursuit, if I give up that thing, and I don't go over to the Lord, this man says, I won't be satisfied. If I give, if I give away all my money, I won't have the joy of the Lord, as what we see in other parts. And Jesus is saying, that is impossible for those who give up their all for Christ to not receive a bountiful of joy in this life, meaning you today, 2023, happy, joyful. And it was nothing in comparison of what will come. That's what Jesus is saying here. He thinks that giving something up will leave him with less than he will have. And what Jesus explains to us through this passage is that it's impossible for you to give up more than what he's going to give you. It is impossible. You can't do it. So friends, the idol that you're holding on to, which will plunge you into destruction, Jesus promises to overwhelm you and overcome that with something that is insurmountable by our own eyes and measures. Now, there are two ways to hear this call from Christ here. One is negative and one is positive. I think, I think often I, so I'm going to make all of you like me, I err on the negative. I love finding negatives. I love it. So let's look at the negative. The negative is to look internally, inwardly, and evaluate what it looks like to shed off the sins of the flesh. Okay, what can I do? What can I take? That's fleshly, that's fleshly. How can I make goals and promises in 2024? I'm going to be holy, and I'm not going to be angry. I'm going to do all that. What's the cost? What's the notoriety? What's the initial shame of maybe bringing it to the attention of my spouse or my friend? but also the pain of confession, and you go, man, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it because the cost is so much. It'll be worth it because then I won't have those shackles on my hands. It is worth it. It is costly to follow Christ. And Jesus himself looks right at you through his word and says you must leave those idols behind and follow him. But, friend, do not neglect the positive. What does it look like to follow Christ? It is exceptionally awesome to know God. It is exceptionally awesome. You and I throw words around like awesome all the time. OSU football, awesome. That park, awesome. Finally not being in traffic, that's awesome. Friends, that is not awesome. The gift of eternal life from God is awesome. The overwhelming, awesome grace that God gives you in receiving His Son as your Lord by completely giving your life over to Him, it is awesome in what you get. This is, a, this is an investment that anyone who's not a fool, would go for. And he's giving it to you. The feast of the gospel is the greatest thing the world has ever and will ever know. So when you trust in Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, think of it. When you see Christ for who he is, and you ascend to him, and you trust in him, with your whole life, no compartment left unexposed, you are right then and there deemed, think of it, what do you inherit? You inherit the adoption is a child of God. 
the redeemed from the domain of darkness and given to God's marvelous kingdom. The reception of God's Spirit, whom He loves, and to be included in the bride of Christ, the church, where you are completely reconciled from sin and absolved from its punishment and given peace and access to God forever and ever and ever. Friend, look at what God has shown people who were once far off. The type of faith that He requires is of a child. A child who finds it easy to cling to something good and pure. And this type of faith holds nothing back. Not money or power or hope in this life, but a faith in an everlasting life brought by the Son of God through His incarnation, sinlessness, substitutionary death for our own atonement, resurrection from the grave, ruling and reigning over everything where He invites us to shed off something like money and come to the King of the world. It's awesome. And when knowing the purity of the Gospel, counting the cost feels too good to be true, recognize that God's very good word to you says it doesn't. You get all of Him. You get all of Christ. By the smallness of all of you. Friend, I don't know what you're struggling with today, what you're struggling with giving up today. It may be the very things in this passage or a myriad of things, maybe even a combination of things. I don't know what you're struggling with. I would encourage you to invite other people to help you with that. But some of us are so captured by these things to the point where we don't even know that we're captured by it. It may be a woman or a man, a pill or a drug or a drink. It may be a million other things because there are as many idols in this room as there are in people sitting in this room. But this I can promise you with the authority of Christ Jesus himself. There is nothing that you can give up for him that he will not replace a hundredfold with something better. There is nothing in this life and in the age to come. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter at the end of this text. So if you're standing there with a rich young man this morning and you think, I just can't let go because this is where happiness is, this is where satisfaction is, this is where joy is, this is where fulfillment is, God's word to you says, you put that off and I'll fill you with so much that you will overflow. Not just in the age to come, but starting right now. And this is the lesson for us today, where we go to Christ to receive Him in His overflowing reward by trusting in Him who is the only one good enough to save us from our sin. So where when we do ask, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? We know the answer. It is by God Himself giving it to us. Let's pray in joy together.